Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Any further ado, here to discuss the smartest book in the world, Greg Proops. Hello, everybody. Hi, um, I'm Mary, and I'm going to be the uh, inept interviewer for tonight's event. Um, thank you again for coming. Um, so, Greg, we see a lot of uh, books by comedians come through the store, and very few have as much room in history as yours does. Um, <laughs> do you want to talk about how you decided to do this kind of book instead of uh, funny stories from showbiz? Well, most comedians uh, have that. Uh, have that. Hello. Ooh. Most comics uh, um, don't care if uh, they're concerned whether or not they bore everyone to death, and I don't have that. Uh, <laughs> I, I really uh, I feel like it has to be what I like to talk about, and so that's why it's book. Uh, the first thing we decided was to not have, uh, to not do a memoir. I mean, I didn't even pitch a memoir. Um, I went into the office uh, uh, in New York City and there was loads of books by comics and it was all, you know, I got drunk and I shagged this person and da 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 And those books are perfectly fine. Um, but I thought instead of that I'll do a book that has stuff in it. Um, meaning stuff you can latch on to, stuff you can remember, stuff you can think about. Um, as opposed to talking about myself. However, I'm unbelievably happy to talk about myself all night long right now. Um, how was it different doing the book as opposed to the podcast, you know, doing something more prepared? But to answer your question, Roman history is a particular <laughs> favorite of mine. And uh, my wife always is like, uh, why do you like Roman history? They're fascists. And I'm like, that's it. You know, like a thousand years of fascism with no forward movement and technology. And they were able to do this, uh, you know, for whatever amount of success they had. And the influence on us, uh, that's what if I find riveting. So that's why I stuck a bunch of it in there. Um, the difference between the podcast and this, of course, is that the podcast can be largely incoherent and backtrack and I can repeat myself and um, it can be elliptical and, um, and never really go off. It can be tangential. Whereas the book had to have some cohesiveness to it in order, in order that people might read it successfully. Uh, I, I thought about transcribing it and I read a couple of the transcriptions of my show and I was baffled uh, <laughs> at, at the fact that anyone would be able to hang tough during this diatribe, so, or as my friend Jim Sweeney calls it, Soviet-style ranting. And uh, so uh, I thought, well, I'll sit down and... What a terrible overnoise. Um, I'll sit down and try to write something more coherent that people can read and um, jump from place to place. I don't think you're supposed to read... Well, I mean, I don't care how you read it, but I, you don't have to read it from cover to cover. I would, I would skip around. Um, did you feel a greater responsibility to research and get everything absolutely right than you do when you do your podcast? Did you do a lot of research for the book? I felt exactly the same amount of responsibility, Mary. I wasn't implying that you were lying. No. I, my podcast is predicated in facts. that They are, in fact, the bedrock of... Uh, <coughs> no. I try to cite everything I talk about in my podcast. Um, I, don't, I, don't, uh, uh, I don't do what bloviating white guys do on TV, which is say, uh, well, um, you know, poor people uh, are always violent. 
and then there's the, there's no basis for it, and there's no factual evidence for it. And in fact, it is gas. Um, I I try to uh, say things on my show. I obviously I get my opinion all the time, but uh, if I read out a news item or something like that, I almost always as as much as I can cite where where I'm talking about. What no matter what the source is, um, which I think is important that people back themselves up. I learned it in England when I lived there. You'd be at a, 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 a fabulous soiree or dinner party standing on a balcony looking at Salmon Rushdie's back and someone would say, what do you think about this? And you'd say something and then they go, really? Why do you think that? Which is exactly the opposite of America. No one ever does a follow-up question on your opinions here. Uh, you're allowed to say any old nonsense. People say things like, well, I don't know if it's a fact, but I know what I believe. And then everyone just nods and you're like, mm-mm. <laughs> things that you believe aren't facts. Those are things that you believe. Mike Huckabee. <laughs> uh, how did you choose which subjects would make it into the book? Well, it's everything we talk about on the show, you know, feminism and uh, baseball and uh, uh, art and uh, movies and records I like and books I like and poems and jazz like that. Um, the poems were slightly restricted because we weren't able to spend money on current poems, so we had to pick poems from that were in public domain, which only left me Shakespeare and Ovid. Um, no, but, but I wanted to put Lorca in the book, and there was an issue with that, so Lorca didn't get in the book, but... Um, next book, uh, it'll be Lorca and Orca, if I have my way. <laughs> There'll be a chapter on the movie Orca and a chapter on the poet Lorca, <laughs> where a cetacean meets a Spanish gay poet who was shot by fascists, and it'll be a meeting of Orca and Lorca. I'm hoping to sell it to Showtime. <laughs> um, He's a seagoing mammal, <laughs> He's a dead Spanish poet. <laughs> Together, they seek adventure in Cincinnati. <laughs> Will Ohio ever be the same? Or can work two states after Californication reruns? <laughs> um, Go on, Mary. You're doing yeah, fine. No, sorry. Um, so were you always the guy who knew something about everything? Or like, were you that kid who... Why? What have you heard? <laughs> Or did this something came to you later? Of course I was. Uh, I got the anti-intellectual drift pretty early in grade school um, because I knew all the answers to everything and it didn't make you popular. Uh, I got that um, pretty quick. Also, I was very dinky with glasses and I spoke the same way. And uh, so, uh, yeah... It wasn't until high school that I grew at all and had any height. Um, but in any case, yeah, I, I always did know. Um, I, I wasn't the smartest kid in my class. There was always a couple kids smarter than me. And I remember Ken Piscini in 7th and 8th grade. But I had a really cool uh, um, teacher, a history teacher in 7th and 8th grade, Bart Kevney. And he taught us all about Greek and Roman history. And I was one of two children that found it interesting. Everyone else could care less. Evidently, uh, it was pr- in those days, it was like, what, uh, three dog night? And, you know, <laughs> I just made it sound like we we're driving around in Model A's or whatever, wearing fur coats. Uh, I was, yeah, kind of that. And I also was this, you know, I would imitate the teacher behind his back, and then I'd get thrown out, and then I would enjoy school. As soon as you weren't in the classroom, I was like, this is all right. It was the sitting in the class that hashed my giblets. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started with your podcast? Yes. Um, 
there had been an all-enveloping gloom that had encompassed Earth, and suddenly I was born out of the forehead of my father Zeus, and I saw that the world needed cataclysmic change, and so I said, lighten up to everybody, let's do this, and uh, the podcast was born out of a molten bowl of uh, hominy. A couple guys asked me to do it. Like four years ago, uh, Matt and Ryan, who I don't even see here tonight, that's how much they care about my career. And uh, they do Jimmy Pardo's show, Never Not Funny, and they do Doug Benson's, uh, all of Doug Benson's podcasts, I Love Movies, and all those things. And they, because I knew them and I'd made a couple albums with them, yes, albums, uh, <laughs> uh, not on vinyl, but the next one will be on wax. Um, uh, they asked me to do it, and I said yes. And then I said, well, what'll it be? And they were like, we don't know. Hi. And. Um, <laughs> Don't ever, ever fucking sneak up on me like that again. That was so scary just now. If I wasn't a Buddhist, I would be so fripped out right now. And uh, 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 I, I said, do, do we have guests? Do we not have, you know, I don't know, I don't know. My first, and you're not going to, lo- you're going to love this. My first thought was, shall we have authors every week? And then it was like, hmm, that'll be tough. So, uh, um, then I, I, the first decision I made was um, uh, no guests. I had done a chat show at Largo uh, in the um, what is now the Tennessee district, but used to be the kosher produce district um, on Fairfax. Uh, um, and I had to book guests for five years. And so it was me calling people on the phone and them going, I can't be there Monday. I'm in Philadelphia. And that lasted for five years, that phone call. And so... Uh, I decided if I was going to do the podcast, I wasn't going to interview anybody. Also, Jimmy interviews people. Mark Maron interviews people. Aisha interviews people. Everyone interviews people. So I thought, well, I won't. Uh, I'll just get to talk and talk and talk. And then I have the audience do questions sometimes. So the audience is my guest. Um, I'm fascinated by the baseball teams that you made up in the book. I can imagine. <laughs> can you tell me how you came up with those lineups? <laughs> they are a subject of some fascination. <laughs> That was a joke, of course. Uh, you'll, you'll find humor gently infusing itself. Yes, my darling, I'm sorry. I, it's terribly rude to no, shut you down. That's you. totally fine. Um, Try to win the crowd with humor. <laughs> At my expense. I know. Uh, uh, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about how you made them and what would your ideal matchup be between your fictional baseball teams? Wow, I hadn't considered the second part of that question, so let me ignore that and go to the first part. <laughs> Um, a lot of them were organically um, came out of the podcast. Uh, we were in Brooklyn a couple of years ago, and a cat in the audience goes, uh, who's your all-time Roman Emperor's baseball team? So I had to make it up right then and there. And then we were in London right after that, and they gave me uh, the Kings and Queens of England, so I made that up. And then it kind of spun out of control. Then it was every week. Then it was uh, Canadians, uh, all-time, women in history, uh, uh, um, uh, presidents, whatnot. Uh, and then uh, I think my editor gave me bombshells because I was having trouble. He wanted me to define a bombshell, and I couldn't do it and I couldn't find a funny way to talk about it he said make a baseball team of bombshells and then I was able to do it so for me everything is a baseball team uh, my ultimate matchup uh, I don't know I think I've loved I like the dictators team uh, because I think uh, making tyrannical genocidal despots into something funny was uh, an undertaking that I don't know if I was wholly successful at but uh, it was hilarious to do I thought um, just imagining Hitler and Napoleon on the same team playing pepper was what I like to think of does Napoleon wear his hat flat gangster style like they do now or does he, you know, does he, does he curve the bill you know what I mean and what I think I said in the book Hitler gets angry and, and knocks over the vegetarian buffet after the game no one's allowed to smoke when Hitler's the manager 
Uh, going back to the Roman Emperor uh, baseball team. Hooray! Who is your favorite Roman Emperor and why? My favorite Roman Emperor? The most well, I mean, I like Caesar because I think he's the, you know, he's for the first one. He's not really properly emperor. He's just sort of dictator. Uh, but because I think he is the most over-ambitious human being that ever walked the earth and, uh, and backed it up a good deal of the time. Uh, my favorite ones on the team are Heliogobulus at short because uh, Heliogobulus was an unbelievable pervert of the highest caliber. <laughs> and uh, I think my favorite line maybe in the whole book, Caligula, is as catcher because this teenage madman can handle balls. Um <laughs> That was said at the spur of the moment, and that's the level of humor uh, that I try to go for a lot of the time in my show. But testicular and divine. <laughs> also accurately represents the book, for those of you who haven't read it. Um, so I noticed that uh, throughout the book you... <laughs> which I loved. The book is fantastic. Um, I noticed that... I noticed the compliment came after the... <laughs> Diminution well, there. I feel that it wasn't being taken seriously. Um, yeah, that's all right. <laughs> Fortunately, humility is an awesome trait of mine. <laughs> As is self-deprecation. You've come to the right place. Um, so I noticed that throughout the book you capitalized the word women but not the word men. Uh, was that a fight with your copy editor? Uh, oh, no, no. That was a, <laughs> we decided to do it, and, uh, and for good reason, I thought. Um, my wife, uh, years ago, she worked at City Lights, Jennifer, and um, she, there was a cartoon that we always loved, and it was uh, it's a woman behind the counter in a bookstore and a guy coming up, and the woman saying, books by men are downstairs. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I always thought it was hilarious. Um, there's been plenty of talk about men, and so I thought we'll, we'll capitalize women and, and, and uh, give them a little more respect than they usually get. There's a whole reason, raison, that I give in the beginning uh, uh, on the Proofs Commandments at the, t- at the top of the book, and it's because, you know, there's, an, there's a Victoria's Secret television show on TV every year, and there's not a Calvin Klein undies, butt snuggy uh, boys underwear show. You go into restaurants still, and uh, uh, the women servers are wearing, like, hot pants and, you know, a midi top, and you don't go into restaurants and find a guy with feathers uh, glued to his butt uh, serving you. Um, I just get tired of the incessant sexism in this world, and I'll go even further than that. I think every woman in this room knows what I'm talking about when they've been harassed constantly on the street, when you're simply trying to go from one end of the block to the other to do your laundry or whatever, wearing your a do-rag and shower shoes, and an, a douchebag will drive by in a truck and go, like, every woman's had this house. Men are a walking advertisement for their penis every second of the day. That's all we've got to sell, and we're running around selling it all the time. And women are like, would you stop for two seconds? We've had quite enough of it. Uh, And I mean, there's other people who don't share that point of view, and of course, they can be as uninvolved and troglodytic as they like. Troglodytic, whatever the word is, cave dweller. Um, I just get tired of it. I get tired of that. Also, I'm in comedy, so rampant sexism is, you know, just coin. Um... (laughs) You know, my under, my understanding is uh, many comics have a girlfriend, and that their girlfriend is so fat. <laughs> uh, what book is, would you recommend to people who enjoyed your book? Oh, well, I'm working on another one. Um, <laughs> Uh-huh. What's your new book like? No, about, well, like like a rectangle shape. Uh, the, I I uh, I would recommend lots of books. Um, um, 
I, I recommend a bunch in the book, but uh, uh, I think if you want to catch up on things, um, it, it, it's not too late to read um, some of the ones you missed. I, I've been in the last few years. I, I had never read On the Road or Fahrenheit 451, and so I've read those. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you skip things in high school. Uh, I don't think it's too late to read Catcher in the Rye, for goodness sake. But um, I, I would say 1984. is. If you haven't ever read it, it's a very damn fine place to start. If you want to know what's going on exactly with politics in the world right now, uh, 1984 is kind of a guidebook. Um, it's, a, it's a superheated state where the history is rewritten all the time and nothing on the news is true and everyone's being spied on every moment of the day and their thoughts are their crimes. Uh, so you can see how it's a lot like today. The only thing missing is phones. Instead of phones, it's televisions because it was written in 1948. Uh, that's a goodie. Um, uh, oh, gee willikers. Um <laughs> We're in a bookstore. I was just looking over here at Bullfinch's Mythology, but I wouldn't recommend that to anyone who doesn't want to be chucked out of a cocktail party for boring everyone ceaselessly. Um, you recommend a lot of baseball books in your book. What is your favorite baseball book? My favorite baseball book is The Glory of Their Times by Larry Ritter, uh, which is uh, he went around the country in the 50s and early 60s and uh, with a with a, t- a reel-to-reel tape recorder and hunted down ballplayers who played before World War One. And he was in uh, Wahoo, Nebraska, and he was at a laundromat, and there was an old fellow sitting at the laundromat, and he had been looking for a, a player named Wahoo Sam Crawford for ages. And he looked him up in the phone book, couldn't find him, couldn't find his address, da, da, da. says to the old guy, hey, I'm looking for Wahoo Crawford. And the guy goes, I am Wahoo Crawford. <laughs> and then he interviewed him, and he played in the outfield with Ty Cobb, the sociopath, for 16 years. Uh, Crawford at him batted third and fourth, and they detested one another. And the book is just a fantastic oral history of guys talking about getting nickel haircuts and blue plates specials and uh, a wagon load of barrels goes by and they're all excited because that's good luck and oh look there's a cross-eyed girl now I'm going to get a hit like it's that era right the umpires are wearing silk hats and it's just fucking great you know they take a wagon to the game and people are throwing fruit at them the whole time and stuff and and then they chant sleep at night because fans are burning their effigy outside their hotel room and banging on pots and pans and it's it's just good stuff Uh, and then my other favorite book of all time is Satchel Pages America by William Price Fox William Price Fox Fox is a journalist, and he goes to visit Satchel Page in the early 70s in Kansas City, and he's at the Twilight Zone's bowling alley in the lounge, um, uh, drinking a beer, right? And he goes, I've been looking for Page, and he goes, sit down, and they start talking, and he's from the South, so Page takes to him immediately, right, because Page is from the South, and um, uh, uh, he hangs out with him, he, gives, he goes... Look Magazine gave me $2,000 to do an article on you. Here's the 2000 right? He's got it in cash. It's a lot of money in those days. And Paige goes, keep 1000 of it. And when we're done with the article, you can give me the other 1000 right? So they roll around for a week. They go to the muffler shop. They get Paige's muffler fixed. And he doesn't fix all of it, which is fantastic. He's like, just put this part in here. The other part will hold out for a while. And then they go to a barbecue place. And they're like, oh, Satchel Paige is here. They go to a nightclub. And they're like, Satchel Paige is here. Everywhere they go, he's the Mayor, right? And at the nightclub, he gets up and does a cakewalk with his legs kicking in the air and arms flapping. And oh, yeah. It's, and they buy him champagne. It's really the best book that's not about baseball you'll ever. He talks about buying yellow socks with Jelly Roll Morton in New Orleans in the 20s. I mean, that's how good this book is. <laughs> Um, can you talk a little bit about Satchel Page's career? I thought that was really interesting. Why, thank you. Um, he's a fascinating individual, and he doesn't get a lot of play right now. Um, 
you know, before baseball was integrated. And there's one thing the owners will never stop doing, and that's celebrating themselves for integrating the game. There's a Jackie Robinson day everywhere, which is hilarious. They, everybody wears number 42, and they run around, and they're like, oh, aren't we great? And it's like, shouldn't it be like shame day or whatever that they didn't let people play for 150 goddamn years? All of a sudden, we're proud. We let one dude play who was a four-letter athlete and an officer in the army and then played, you know, whatever. Uh, anyways, uh, Paige was famous before that, and he finally got to play in the big leagues, uh, and he did play for several years in the big leagues. He was actually voted on uh, for Rookie of the Year his first season. His first black player uh, to play in the Amer- pitcher in the American League, first black pitcher in the, in the World Series, um, and then they voted uh, for Rookie of the Year. He was somewhere in the neighborhood of 42, 43 when he was rookie, and um, he, Paige's quote was, I'm not sure what year the gentleman had in mind. Uh, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, and um, anyways, uh, he was a very brave individual. And not only that, he did something else that uh, uh, not a lot of people get credit, give him credit for. He was enough of an entrepreneur to know his own worth as an entertainer and, a, and an athlete. So he put a price on himself, and he went around and formed his own team, and he had his own plane, and they flew from town to town, and he worked with other athletes, and they barnstormed. And uh, so, in other words, no... Uh, white eminence told him, you must earn this much money. He simply thought it up and did it uh, in the grand tradition of people that had been barnstorming before that and uh, was so successful at it that part of the reason he wasn't the first black player in the big leagues was he was making too much money on his own. And secondly, the white owners didn't want to give up the rent they were making from the black teams. That was one of the main reasons they didn't want integration. First of all, they thought there'd be riots because the, you know they were grumpy white guys who lived in a cave and uh, didn't understand that everybody liked the game. And secondly, uh, the white teams um, would go away on the weekend and they'd rent it out to the black teams and there'd be 40,000 people in a stadium where no one went. And they didn't want that income to stop. Uh, he's also a bit of a showman. In the book you talk about when he's pitching, um, having the outfielders sit down or... Do you want to talk about some of that? Sure. He would come under the game. When we'd go to see Satchel Page, there was a big sign that said, guaranteed to strike out the side of your money back, right? So he'd have to strike three guys out in a row. And then if he was getting really wild, he'd have the outfielders sit down or even come off the field and then have the infielders sit down. Sometimes they'd play cards at second while he pitched. (laughs) He also had the word fastball written on the bottom of his shoe so that they knew what was coming, right? Like he was a big time showboater and he never ran anywhere. He walked, right? And uh, uh, he he did all kinds of things. They did have a hole in the fence and he'd bet guys he couldn't throw the ball through the hole in the fence and of course he could because he was deadly accurate and when he first came up to the bigs they, they, he said put a, piece of, put a gum wrapper on the plate and he threw the ball over the gum wrapper like 9 out of 10 times and they were losing their minds right like he, <laughs> he really was that guy they flew around in a plane that said Satchel Pages All-Stars you'll see sometimes him in a jersey that says Pages All-Stars and uh, claims to have beaten a snake to death with a bat once during a game <laughs> The best part of writing it was there's no less reliable source about Satchel Paige's life than Satchel Paige because he absolutely made stuff up all the time. He willfully misremembered Bob Feller is a famous pitcher who he played with for years barnstorming and then in the big leagues. And his nickname was Rapid Robert. Satchel Paige, in all the literature I've ever read, never once refers to him as Bob Feller. It's always Bob Rapid. (laughs) <laughs> you know that Bob Rapid was quite a good pitcher uh, and then I had a fact checker fact check the book very expensively and uh, she said I don't, I'm not sure that Satchel Page met his wife at the Crawford Grill as you described and I'm like I'm not sure anything that Satchel Page described <laughs> 
She also said, I said, Satchel Page pitched longer than Nolan Ryan, and Nolan Ryan pitched for 100 years. And the fact checker wrote me an email, I swear to God, <laughs> Nolan Ryan did not pitch for 100 years. And I was like... <laughs> I think there's a difference between error and exaggeration. <laughs> Miss Tate did not. <laughs> Do you think baseball had a golden era? No. I think the golden era is now. If you think it's a golden era, there were no black people, no night games, no, no teams uh, uh, west of St. Louis. No. No, I mean, no major league teams. Um, uh, I, I mean, I'm a big fan of dead ball and I'm a big fan of the Negro Leagues and I like to romanticize them. But no, a segregated, hideous, uh, racially divided, inequitable America is awful. Unfortunately, now we live in the corporate revenue flu dome era of baseball where baseball games are like NASCAR matches and there's loud pounding music every two seconds and jet flyovers and fake patriotism and two fucking patriotic songs during a baseball game. <laughs> I'm not at the game. I'm there to be high, you know, and like watch baseball. I, I, why would you have jets fly over a baseball game? Are we attacking a, a baseball game? <laughs> and then they sing God Bless America in the seventh inning. And then they want to remember the troops and stuff. You want to remember the troops. How about if the owners give the, the door to the homeless troops that live in Los Angeles? That would be... Uh, you know what? Baseball doesn't need like, to be sped up. And baseball doesn't need uh, uh, corporate flyovers and national anthems. Baseball needs $5 parking. And three dollar hot dogs, so that you can take. Thank you for laughing, Kelly. So that that people can take their children to the games again. And I'm very serious about that. I, the owners are just rat finks, and they never lower the prices. And I mean rat fink in the most pointed way. <laughs> Um, do you want to tell us about the book that you're working on? No, I'm, I'm not actually working oh. on a book. I'm so exhausted I can barely sell this one every day. <laughs> but I get up in the morning and I'm excited. I feel like I have something to do. It took so long to write it. I feel guilty that it took so long to write it. I feel like if you're going to write a book that long, shouldn't Napoleon be threatening Moscow at some point in the book? <laughs> <laughs> How long did it take you? Two years. <laughs> I know, gasp. <laughs> um, I was on the road. I don't have any excuse. I really don't. Did you write it sequentially? I did. I, I got up every morning and I had uh, note cards all over my hotel room and I would follow them. Uh, I had, some of them were luminous and I would wear this, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, a peignoir. Uh, and I had this lamp I'd wear. No, no, I went all over the yard. Uh, I, I wrote um, uh, the baseball thing first, I think, and then I wrote a gigantic chapter on Alexander the Great that got cut down to what you see. And the one on Caesar was way longer, too. And then uh, there was going to be a chapter on Cleopatra and Mark Antony, but I had to scrap that one. The book started to turn into an ancient history book. <laughs> um, do you want to take some questions from the audience? I'd adore to. Can I read two quick things from it? Oh, please. So the, uh, the two things I'm, I'm proudest of... Uh, uh, one, that my uh, wife uh, did the illustrations, which I think are fabulous, and uh, also, uh, you know, I wouldn't have ever written it if she hadn't have prodded me and poked me to uh, do the podcast and do the book. Um, but uh, there's a chapter on art, and this was given to me by my editor, Matthew Benjamin, who said, um, you should do a chapter, because there's a lot of art fever on my, tele on my, on my television show, on my um, uh, uh, podcast and um, most art theft is uh, done uh, the way the old fashioned way you take the picture off the wall and you go ass over tea kettle out the door with it there, there really isn't a lot of other ways to do it it's not like Brad Pitt in Ocean's 13 or whatever there, you don't you know no, there's no lasers and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> Like, honestly, the last two people who stole uh, Edward Munch's The Scream, that last gang that stole it, left a note that said, thanks for making it so easy. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And then they, they're all in jail now. But, uh, 
but it was. Like when the Mona Lisa got stolen, and that's why I start with that one. It was a, a worker at the Louvre, and he walked up to the Mona Lisa, took it, rolled it up, and stuck it in his coveralls and walked out with it. Uh, so, I, of course, I'm not saying you should steal art. <laughs> Although LACMA is very close by. Now, the problem with stealing art from the Getty is, how are you going to take that uh, tram all the way back down the hill? <laughs> it's such a long escape. <laughs> Terrible route. I like the Getty Villa, but then the Getty Villa, if you take one of those priceless pieces of antiquity, you're going to have to run all the way back to the car park past the cafeteria and the bookstore, so it's far too far. I like the Marmiton in Paris because you could pull a Renault up into the car park and I can chuck one of the Monets out the window at you. And then you stuff it in the back of the Reno and then we, we're off to the... And then we go to Café du Mago and we're like, ah, ha, 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 whatever. And then we, you know, ooh, oh, la, 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 la. Um, that's why. It should be fun. So unless your plan is foolproof, don't call me about stealing art. In which case, if it is foolproof, I have a van with a horse painted on the side. And I answer to Miguel. <laughs> the chapter's called Art I Wish I Had the Balls to Steal. And the premise is we're going to steal the art. So it's the, the piece of art we're going to steal, where it's located, and then how we're going to do it, and then the chance of success, right? Uh, and then uh, there's a lot of them. Uh, most of them are too big to steal, obviously, like... Uh, um, the Leishan Giant Buddha um, in, yeah, in Sichuan, which is uh, hundreds of feet, 233 feet tall. So well, that's a Zen theft. Uh, <laughs> I think I say here, uh, uh, better yet, let's make this a Zen theft. We see the Buddha. We want to possess the Buddha. We come to the realization that we cannot attain the Buddha. We have been dishonest with ourselves. <laughs> We let it go and go get Chinese food. Chance of success as good as anything the universe has. Uh, but my, I think the best one is this one. Paintings, George W. Bush. <laughs> George, located on Dick Cheney's fridge, Wyoming. George W. Bush was almost voted president twice during the terror war depression boom of the 2000s. You may remember the 2000 election. After that election, I was surprised Haiti didn't invade us to install a democracy. <laughs> Dick Cheney was nominally vice president, but in reality, he was the shot caller. Since his retirement from public life, W's been pursuing his goal of being the worst artist who ever held office since Hitler. His poor, Hitler was an artist, you see. A very poor artist. His, although Stalin, not a bad poet. That's little consolation to the people that died in the pogroms. 